Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with revelations from Sunday's release of January 6 transcripts, dealing with the most important issue of all, and that is the survival of the planet, which was at stake when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called the head of our military, General Milley, to ask him to call Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment out of concern that Trump could use his access to the nuclear codes as a desperate attempt to stay in power. The transcripts of Milley confirm that Pelosi said to him, referring to Trump, quote, You know he's crazy, don't you? And Milley agreed with that assessment, going on to reassure Pelosi the nuclear codes were in safe hands. Joining us to assess why it has taken so long to reveal what a few insiders knew, that the President of the United States was mentally unstable, particularly now that Trump is running for the presidency again, is Dr. Bandy Lee, a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist and a world expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 37 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess the president. She's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition, and her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Then we'll examine the chaotic election underway for the next House Speaker as a preview of what the next Republican Congress dominated by the radical right Freedom Caucus will be like. Joining us is Dennis Aftergut, a former federal prosecutor and a chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently focuses on affirmative litigation and defending cases involving civil rights and democratic norms under attack, and we'll discuss his article at The Hill with Norm Ornstein, Five Things to Expect from the Incoming House, and another at Salon with Lawrence Tribe, Scene of the Crime, Was There a Conspiracy to Keep Cassidy Hutchison Silent? Then finally we'll look into the violence inherent in NFL football, following the cardiac arrest of Damar Hamelin, who laid on the field for nine minutes receiving CPR early in a Monday night game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. Joining us is Robert Lipsight, a longtime sports writer and the jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch. He was previously a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and for the NBC Nightly News, as well as a city columnist of the New York Times and an ombudsman for ESPN. His books include Sports World and American Dreamland and his memoir, An Accidental Sports Writer. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
Joining us now, Dr. Bandy Lee, a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist and a world expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine, Yale Law School, for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She became known by, to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 37 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president, and she's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition. And her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Bandy Lee. Hello. So we're learning now, Dr. Lee, that General Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, testified uh, last year that he agreed with uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that former President Donald Trump was crazy. Now, I know that's not a word that psychiatrists like to use, but it definitely is pretty extraordinary when you got the head of the military and the Speaker of the House agreeing that they think that the President of the United States is mentally unstable. And this is, after all, a man with the ability to destroy the world with nuclear weapons at his fingertip. So that's quite a revelation, is it not? Yes, uh, indeed. Well, I think it uh, was serious enough that caused a group of mental health professionals, in fact, hundreds and later thousands, to come forth to try to warn against the the mental instability of the president uh, as soon as he was inaugurated, in fact. And shortly after he was elected, uh, one of my colleagues actually wrote to President Obama about the president-elect at the time requiring uh, a psychi- neuropsychiatric evaluation. Of course, we've done uh, an evaluation of him based on collateral interviews and reports, which was through the Mueller report. And we, had, we were able to come to the conclusion that he was, uh, in fact, unfit by every psychiatric standard. But the problem was that there was a lot of disinformation out there, that what we were trying to do as our societal duty was dubbed to be armchair psychiatry and unethical by the American Psychiatric Association itself. So none of this information got out or was able to be fully used by Congress members until it got to the dire state of the nation being in danger and actually democracy itself uh, being dismantled. And you're referring, of course, to the the Goldwater rule and you're making the point, uh, Dr. Lee, that that this rule (laughs) prevented the truth from emerging about who this man was. The idea that you can't psychoanalyze somebody unless you're actually treating them as a doctor-patient in a doctor-patient relationship, which is an absurd notion when you have so much evidence about who this man is and how he behaves. And I guess at the end of the day, the question that emerges is, how did he get elected? What What is it? Do we need to do a mental health evaluation of the American people, or at least half of the American people who voted for him? What happened there? Why can't they see the obvious? Well, when the symptoms are so severe and outside the range of ordinary experience, it's uh, natural to misinterpret it or underestimate it or 
to uh, assume that it's somehow within the range of normalcy because most people have do not have the experience of severe mental impairment day in and day out the way mental health professionals do. But the reason why we train specialists and experts, professionals in society is so that they can uh, share the expertise that they have gathered and accumulated over years of, if not decades, of clinical practice. And that was not able to come out. And uh, yes, you did mention the Goldwater rule, which is only which was an obscure rule that most people thought was outdated and irrelevant. In fact, its very institution was based on a political compromise, as you can see from the name itself. It was after Goldwater's campaign that the American Psychiatric Association, and that's the only mental health association that adopted it. Well, uh, a politically motivated so-called ethical guideline, uh, it's not a rule, it's a guideline, um, would be bound to be politically abused. And I would say it has been at the peril of numerous deaths, um, if we count COVID deaths, which are almost all attributable to Donald Trump's mental impairments, that would be almost a million American deaths in addition to the escalating violence, the near loss of democracy, and as we have seen from the January 6th committee uh, findings, we uh, uncontrolled criminality and uh, destruction was allowed to come from the White House, and all this was preventable. You know, I just was talking to somebody yesterday about George Santos, uh, Dr. Lee, and, and the idea that what are we teaching our children? You know, where, are we teaching our children that you can be a liar and a cheat and become president of the United States, and you can be a liar and become a congressman? And I mentioned that one of the most alarming things about Trump being a sociopath, to my mind, was apparent on 9 on the day of that extraordinary tragedy here in the United States. When the building was was still smoldering that very day, Donald Trump went on local TV in New York and boasted that now that the Twin Towers have come down, my building is the tallest on Wall Street. I mean, what kind of a sociopath has this guy always been? I mean, it's just been so clear and obvious. Yes, I think that's one of the difficulties that most people don't uh quite understand that there can be individuals who do not have a conscience and do not are incapable of having any uh, compassion for their fellow human beings and are actually driven to harm other human beings. And that's that's one of the cardinal features of uh, of psychopathy, which can manifest as sociopathy. And the fact that more and more of these individuals are taking charge of not only corporations and institutions, but positions in government. And we know that the vast majority, uh, I think someone estimated about 95% of the world's atrocities have been committed by this 5% of uh, mentally impaired individuals. And to keep them out of important positions, we do need some kind of standard. 
And one way, a very easy way of implementing it is is through fitness tests. But of course, uh, the public does not have awareness enough about mental health to know that just about every job or task in the country requires the person to be mentally fit. It's only public office, the highest public offices that um, are exempt from this. And that's something that the people should learn to demand, but they don't know to demand this because uh, they haven't heard of it. And mental health experts have been, uh, have been muzzled to the point where you no longer hear not one that I know of a uh, mental health professional who was speaking about the current crisis that we are in, which is actually a public mental health crisis. Well, indeed, the work that you've done through your book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Success, a President, is the only way that this story got out. And you yourself suffered enormous backlashes from Alan Dershowitz pressuring Yale to fire you, etc. I mean, you did this important work, but at great personal cost. Well, I don't consider it a cost, uh, given what the nation has to lose. And what we are seeing is a rise in authoritarianism, where those with true authority, that is, those with knowledge or facts or actual um, goods to share with the public, are silenced in favor of those who have power. Simply raw power is how authoritarianism rises, and that's when true authority no longer has a voice. And, uh, well, I understood that that was a danger when all my colleagues, even though they agreed with my assessment, suddenly fell silent because they were afraid of, uh, in the beginning it was, they were afraid they might lose their license from a litigious president, or they would be physically attacked by his violent followers. And um, because the profession itself has fallen silent with the American Psychiatric Association championing the way, not only keeping silent themselves, but silencing those who would speak their conscience, uh, we are in the predicament we are today. From my perspective, it remains a mental health crisis. Uh, it was never a political crisis because in every other profession, those who are those who do not have the mental equipment, in other words, those who are not fit to do their duty, are not permitted in their positions. But uh, I guess Congressman Jamie Raskin tried for a while to have an other body established for the 25th Amendment to bring in some standard. The body was supposed to be composed of psychiatrists, psychologists, neurologists, and other medical professionals. But that was that was never passed. And, and now uh, with the January 6th committee report was actually very, as, as well done as it was um, in terms of presenting the evidence, framing the evidence uh, had a lot to be desired because the central issue, the mental unfitness of the president, was never raised. And uh, I'm, I'm rather disappointed. Um, and the referral for criminal charges was done uh, two years too late. And the Department of Justice, of course, has been 
dragging its feet, I'm not sure why, um, perhaps the way everyone has backed off in that when the most egregious and dangerous criminals appear, uh, they are the least likely to be prosecuted even in in criminal court because most of the time because they uh, they're so charming and beguiling, they fool many of the the prosecutors and judges. But we have to look at their deeds and we have to look at look at it from a mental health perspective. A large part of what mental health professionals do in criminal court is to show um, how these especially psychologically devious individuals uh, are usually are usually the most important, the, the the most dangerous, and those we need to indict um, aggressively the most. But they are, uh, I think, the data show that they are two and a half times more likely to be let go of, uh, be let out of prison, or not to be indicted in the first place, compared to. Uh, compared to non-mentally impaired individuals committing the same crimes. Mm, and yet they are more dangerous and uh, they will be driven to harm and damage in ways that I don't believe the general public can truly grasp. And well, if a million American deaths did not do it and uh, a violent insurrection that almost overturned the government didn't do it, then what will? I think education is the only way, and it doesn't look good so far because mental health ex- ex- professionals have been silenced. And just in the last minute, Dr. Lee, nothing is more important than the end of the world. And the, uh, and you mentioned the 25th Amendment, and Nancy Pelosi called General Milley to ask him to push Pence into invoking the 25th Amendment. And uh, in that conversation, that was when... Nancy Pelosi said to uh, General Milley, you know he's crazy, don't you, talking about Trump, to which Milley replied, yes, that's right. So that's the reality of what we lived through, and we dodged a bullet, which is nothing more serious than the possibility of Donald Trump blowing up the world. Well, Dr. Bannity, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I appreciate you joining us, and I thank you. Okay, well, thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Bandy Lee, who's a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist, and a world expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assessor President, and she's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition. And her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the chaotic election underway for the next House Speaker as a preview of what the next Republican Congress, dominated by the Radical Reich Freedom Caucus, will be like. What goes on in your heart? What goes on in your mind? You are tearing me apart when you treat. Goes on in your mind. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dennis Aftergut, who's a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently focuses on affirmative litigation and defending cases involving civil rights and democratic norms under attack. And he has an article at The Hill with Norm Ornstein, Five Things to Expect from the Incoming House, and another at Salon with Lawrence Tribe, Scene of the Crime. Was there a conspiracy to keep Cassidy Hutchinson silent? Welcome to Background Briefing, Dennis Aftergut. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us, Dennis. And the vote is underway uh, now as we speak. We're pre-recording this at around uh, 4.30 Eastern. They're on the third vote for GOP leader Kevin McCarthy to be confirmed as speaker. He's lost two already. The first one he lost by 19 votes. This one, the third round, uh, he's already down 12 votes, 12 votes for Representative Jim Jordan, who seems to be the, the favorite now of the Freedom Caucus radicals. So he's already lost a third round, in effect, because he's got such a thin margin. So this thing could go on for a long time. And of course, as long as they're trying to have votes for McCarthy and they could go to 50, they won't be able to uh, swear in anybody, including uh, George Santos. So this is not a good look for the Republicans. I agree. It is the look, I believe, that we're going to have for the next two years with this chaotic Congress. And... Is there a chance that Jim Jordan, who seems to be the favorite of the Freedom Caucus radicals, is there a chance? I mean, in your article, you suggest that Steve Scalise is the backup plan for if McCarthy goes down. Uh, Scalise sent a dear colleague letter out on December 30th, touting all the things that he had supported. I found that really interesting because it's been said that he has been quietly waiting in the wings for his prior boss to fail and that he might then get the vote. And what's really interesting about that is, is that this is not an easy job. Nancy Pelosi was a master. She may have made it look easy, but this is not hurting, even hurting cats. This is hurting Tasmanian devils. And it takes real leadership. It takes trust in the leadership team. That trust in all likelihood is fractured. The letter that Scalise sent out did not help repair it. But what about the possibility of Jordan? I mean, he's the opposite of comedy and bringing people together and herding cats and whipping the party to vote. I mean, he's so extreme, but he gets more and more votes every round. I don't know if I heard you correctly say he's the opposite of comedy, but it would be comedy if he comedy with a D and not with a T if he were elected. <laughs> there are plenty of MAGA Republicans who would love to see 
Jordan the speaker. I seriously doubt whether he can possibly get a majority, but it will be interesting to see. And you need to know that there are at least 17 Republicans elected in quite competitive districts. Those 17 are a, that's about four times their majority. And they are not going to be happy with an extremist Republican House and extremist leadership because they have to run again in two years. And that's not what their voters are going to be voting for. So I don't believe that he is going to be able to get uh, 218 votes or really anywhere close to it. And indeed, those 17 could end up working with the Democrats. So if McCarthy doesn't get the votes, and it's increasingly likely that he won't, but on the other hand, either Scalise or Jordan aren't getting the same numbers, so you, you end up with paralysis. But already going into this vote, it looks like Kevin McCarthy sold what's left of his wretched soul piece by piece, and particularly to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's agreed to support him, but the rest of the radicals aren't going along with her. So we don't know what deal McCarthy made with Marjorie Taylor Greene, do we? No, uh, though I think that he made some deal, and it's not a deal that marks uh, someone with a, uh, you know, with... uh, uh, with a spine, um, he, he, McCarthy seems to have this, the spine of a coiled rattlesnake. He sold out something, um, but McCarthy probably sold out his soul so long ago that um, he can't even remember what it looks like. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene apparently is greeting George Santos. <laughs> She's glad that he's a, uh... He's joining them, so that's a whole other story, Santos. And the, it's a it's 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 a good story. Um, you know, Santos, uh, understandably, is getting tremendous attention because of his um, extraordinary pathological dishonesty. In truth, though, Ian, he's just a lag indicator. That is to say, he's just showing us what we've been seeing over the last five years with Donald Trump, or six years, as the head of the party. Lying, of course, is his brand. And this is just the logical extension of Trump and what we're going to see in the next two years. You mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's welcoming him because he pledged to vote for uh, Kevin McCarthy. And she said believe it or not, that she's glad George is being honest. What? She's <laughs> glad George is being honest. Um, does that remind you of that other George, George Orwell, who wrote in 1984, freedom is slavery, war is peace, strength is weakness? I'm glad George is being honest. Another preview of what right. we're going to see with Marjorie Taylor Greene and company effectively in leadership in this house for the next two years. Sure. A broken clock is right twice a day, right? 
So, I mean, you said you used the word comedy. I mentioned comedy. You turned it into comedy. And this is a, a dark comedy, but this is also an American tragedy. And we know from McCarthy, even if he gets the job, and it's increasingly doubtful, um, although the alternatives are even more doubtful, the fact is that in 2013, as you point out in your article with Norm Ornstein, that the Tea Party radicals egged on by McCarthy pushed us close to the abyss with the threat of a default. That's still hanging out there. But it's even worse that this new house, where the tail of the radicals leads the dog of the carcass of the GOP of your father and your grandfather, the point is that they're going to use that tactic, aren't they? The threat to close down the government in order to push through their radical agenda, which is to cut Social Security, to cut Medicare, to cut taxes on the super-rich etc., etc., and also to cut funds for Ukraine. I, I think you're exactly right um, uh, about everything you mentioned in the agenda, but there's one more thing. The real agenda seems to be destruction. It's not like they're just throwing a monkey wrench in the gears. I think they're trying to saw the gears off and, of, of government and um, and it's essentially the nihilist caucus, the non-truth caucus, and the non-governance caucus. You remember that Harry Truman called uh, the Congress that he was dealing with, the Republican Congress, the do-nothing Congress. This is the undo-everything Congress. They want to do exactly what you said to cut Social Security benefits. They want to cut the taxes of the wealthy, and they... They have no agenda for helping ordinary Americans with their pocketbook issues. So the, the less government for so many of these radical Republicans, the better. Here's the thing, Ian, that we can paint, um, you know, as desperate and tragic a picture as possible. And rightly so. This is the result, essentially, of gerrymandered districts. They, the Republicans only took power by you know, uh, four or five votes. And that's the result of gerrymandering in Florida and New York and a lot of places. But here's the point. The real point is that we can't look back and change that. This is the Congress that we have. What we can do citizens who believe in government and who believe in democracy is make lemonade out of the lemons that we've been given. And the way to do that is to speak truth to power, to call out every moment that these things happen, because this is a new Congress in 2022, but 2024 is not far away. I mentioned those 17 districts, those ungerrymandered competitive districts. There will be, I believe, reaction. Politics is like Newton's third law. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I don't believe that the moderate suburban voters in those districts will put up with and want a Republican Congress two times in a row. But that takes citizens to act in between and to speak truth to power. 
So in the last few minutes then, uh, I'd like to turn to the other article that you wrote at Salon with Lawrence Tribe, Dennis Aptegate, scene of the crime. Was there a conspiracy to keep Cassidy Hutchison silent? And Dennis, you point out that the transcripts from the January 6th committee's release of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony read like a sequel to Goodfellas, Martin Scorsese's legendary crime film, and that the lawyer that she had initially, Stefan Passantino, I believe he's quite litigious, and you have to be careful about what you say about him, but it's pretty clear that he tried to get her to perjure herself Uh, and she figured out that she was putting herself in jeopardy. He himself actually had to step down. He wasn't fired, but he he had to leave the office as soon as the real testimony she did after she got rid of him, where she told the truth. Uh, And you point out in the article that under federal law, a person can face a 20-year sentence if convicted of witness tampering the crime of corruptly persuading a witness to withhold testimony. That appears to be what uh, Passantino did, along with Pam Biondi and others, Trump lawyers from Trump world. And, of course, Trump world is the term that's used when she finally figured out, asked him, uh, Passantino, many times, uh, who's paying for this and who's paying for my legal bills, which she couldn't afford. And eventually she found out that Trump world was paying for it, which means that there's a massive conflict of interest in her in that. So... Let's begin with Passantino's jeopardy. Is he in legal jeopardy? Well, um, first, I think it's, it's uh, important to say that everything that we wrote and everything that I say uh, comes from her September uh, testimony before the committee. And um, we haven't heard his side of the story. He's denied uh, uh, that he did anything wrong. And... Um, it's just that if her testimony is true, and I'm going to tell you, Ian, reading that, reading her testimony, um, this is a person whose credibility I would not want to be against. But he hasn't told his side of the story. Now, you said that he left, um, he left his law firm. Um, he left it after this testimony became public. Um, and it's because the testimony, if true, is quite damning in just the way you said. Um, she, um, if, if what she said is true, um, he has a serious conflict of interest that I would not be surprised to see um, some bar complaints filed uh, to vindicate the reputation and the integrity of the legal profession. Um, and in terms of other kinds of jeopardy, our article was saying this is something that deserves investigation because if there was what has every appearance from her testimony, um, a conspiracy to tamper a witness, to keep the witness from testifying truthfully, um, that is a very, very serious obstruction of justice. And particularly, Ian, where it's done to keep silent a witness to important facts in the greatest crime I think we've witnessed against democracy. So um, uh, I think that 
uh, as a former prosecutor, if I this case came across my desk, boy, I would sure be planning to try to get to the bottom of it. Well, indeed, Trump's lawyer, Pam Bondi, who talked to Cassidy Hutchison, uh, they were promising her jobs, and she said to uh, Cassidy Hutchison to keep her on side, I just had dinner with POTUS, President of the United States, and Matt Schlapp, uh, and that Matt would call you next week. Uh, he has a job for you. So that has every appearance of a, of a bribe. But, you know, my, my old and good friend Alex Butterfield spoke to uh, Cassidy Hutchinson and counseled her, and she apparently reached out to him. And that was why she decided to do the right thing, right? It's an amazing story behind the scenes here. Uh, Ian, I read, I read that she read his book three times. The, the book that Bob Woodward that Butterfield wrote. wrote. Butterfield was the one who disclosed the fact that Nixon in 1974 had tapes in the Oval Office. They were the smoking gun that caused his resignation. If Butterfield had not come forward and said that, Nixon would have continued. To me, the fact that he wrote a book and what? Almost 50 years later, he spoke to the next generation of whistleblower and inspired her to break away from her lawyer, if her story's true, that this is what's ha- what happened, and tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. To me, it sends chills up my spine to think how courage is contagious through books and across generations. Well, uh, that's the good news in this otherwise bleak and horrible story, which unfortunately has not ended because Donald Trump is not in uh, an orange jumpsuit at this point or a straitjacket. Ian, I think you just made the most important point. I hate to be trite, but there are silver linings in every cloud. There is inspiration in what Cassidy Hutchinson did for every citizen to act, to speak up for the truth, to support democracy. The power that an individual like her, a 26-year-old woman, has should never be underestimated. And every one of us has power that we can use to keep our republic, as Ben Franklin said uh, 230 years ago. It's a republic if you can keep it. And it takes every one of us, and it's something that we can do, however the bleak the news, however bleak the news looks in Congress or uh, in the executive branch that Cassidy Hutchinson was part of and separated herself from. Well, Dennis Gaptegat, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It was a great pleasure. Again, thank you for having me. Well, thanks again, Dennis. And again, I've been speaking with Dennis Aftergat, who's a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently focuses on affirmative litigation and defending cases involving civil rights and democratic norms under attack. And he has an article at The Hill with Norm Ornstein, Five Things to Expect from the Incoming House, and another at Salon with Lawrence Tribe, Scene of the Crime. Was there a conspiracy to keep Cassidy Hutchison silent? 
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the violence inherent in NFL football following the cardiac arrest of Damar Hamlin. some new ones in and we'll start that show again and if you don't like who's in there vote them out Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Lipsight, a longtime sports writer and the jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch. He was previously a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and for the NBC Nightly News, as well as the city columnist for the New York Times and ombudsman for ESPN. His books include Sports World and American Dreamland, and his memoir, an accidental sports writer. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Lipside. Thanks, Ian. Good to hear your voice again. Well, thanks for joining us, Robert. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of focus now on uh, the tragedy that hit Damar Hamlin on Monday night's uh, NFL football game, seen obviously live. A man hit hard in the chest. It apparently disrupted the normal electrical rhythms of the heart. It's a condition apparently called commodio cordis. And uh, he got CPR there on the field, and eventually an ambulance hauled him away. And it was obviously all live. But what happened, what didn't happen, was that the commissioner of the NFL didn't delay the game for an hour. Uh, He vacillated. And it looks as if the coaches of the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals made the decision earlier. So it's unusual for an NFL game to be stopped, but the impression here is that uh, the leadership of the NFL is lacking, to say the least. Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm I'm very confused by all of this. I must say, Ian, it, it's really not very clear-cut to me. The first thing that jumped into my mind, though, this is very uh, self-regarding, uh, many, many years ago when I was a martial arts student, um, our um, final resort punch was uh, just what you were talking about, the commotion cortis, the uh, strike to the chest right over the heart, because if you got it right at the right moment uh, between beats, you could kill the guy or at least, you know, um, so disrupt his heart that he was totally disabled. I had never seen it uh, before uh, until last night. Um, and that's exactly what it was. It's extremely rare. I think they say something like, you know, 30 a year. Um, I think that what captured everybody's incredible attention was not only seeing, you know, so vividly the violence of the hit, which was really mostly the ball carrier running into the tackler. Um, you know, DeMar was hit. It wasn't that so much that he hit, you know, his, his, uh, target. DeMar was hit. Uh, he goes down, stands up and then we watch him just kind of come apart and fall down. 
You know, meanwhile, in that same game, how many guys are getting hit in the head in those, you know, every game incremental injuries that will finally add up when they're 40 or 50 years old uh, with the kind of brain damage that leads to, you know, cognitive damage, uh, ALS, uh, Parkinson's, whatever. So, I mean, some, something about all of this, the kind of the, the shock and stun and everybody's so, you know, amazed at this thing that happened. I wasn't amazed at the thing that happened. Thank God it doesn't happen, you know, more often. But what it does do in some ways, it obscures the re- real danger, which is the day-to-day um, brain injury uh, that's going on in football from Wee, you know, through the pros, which has not still been addressed in every way. I mean, everybody is going to make a big fuss about this. You know, one thing that really what stunned me was uh, Damar Hamlin uh, had his own fundraiser going, Toys for Kids. And he had something like, uh, I believe it was $60,000 in the fund um, within hours of after him taking that hit, he had close to $4 million in the fund as people all over the country responded. And cynically, I will say, in, in their guilt, in their guilt for watching football, their guilt for enjoying football, in their guilt for, you know, the, um, the pleasure in this kind of excessive violence, you know, they uh, responded. So, um, I don't know, you know, what's going to happen. Hey, talk to me, you know, after the next school shooting. Well, at this moment, though, Damar Hamlin's in, in hospital. He's in an induced coma. He had CPR on the field, and that obviously saved his life. And he was hauled off in the ambulance and got there pretty quickly. What's the latest, uh, your understanding, Robert, of of his condition? And well, I mean, I, mean, I think it's, I think it's really apparent. Uh, the uh, the NFL really has uh, excellent health and safety measures, emergency health and safety measures in place. Um, they got to tomorrow quickly. Uh, CPR started to be administrated very quickly so that um, so the, the point is, of course, how long is the heart or brain not getting blood and how much damage? So that might have minimized the damage and, as you pointed out, saved his life. The question is now, uh, as he comes out of the induced coma uh, and when will we find out? Uh, just how much damage was done to his heart uh, and to his brain. And will he be able to come out of this whole or damaged uh, or in in some way, um, you know, able to function again? Uh, you know, this 24-year-old man in, in obviously the prime of health, uh, a bizarre freak accident. Uh, I, I don't know if you can call 
I don't know if you can call a, a tackle in football an accident, but certainly, you know, the, the result was, was accidental. So, I mean, that's what's going to be, you know, what actually is going to happen. I also think that the delay, I, I wonder about the delay in uh, postponing or canceling the game. I think it made sense in some way, because if you suddenly said, you know, the game's over, there would be a rush out of the stadium, people would just kind of bolt out of the stadium and without good security uh, in place, God knows how many people would trample each other or even get in the way of the ambulance on its way uh, out of the parking lot. So we don't know what deliberations went on with Goodell, but he's getting a lot of negative press for, for being a vacillator and from leading from behind. So, well, I don't think you, that really, you know, that that really doesn't matter to me, because I don't think that has anything to do, you know, with the real issue, which is the safety of the individual, Damar Hamlin, and then ultimately, if we start looking at this thing closer and closer, uh, the safety of people playing football, you know, even some women, girls as uh, as well as men, and starting in peewee and all the way up to the pros, you know, is this the kind of, you know, violent game, uh, obviously the most popular in America, is this the most, uh, is this the kind of violent game that we want, one, to define us, you know, as a people, and, uh, and two, that we can somehow justify taking pleasure in. Well, I know, but the game was suspended, and that in itself is unusual, and now the NFL saying they're not rescheduling at least for this week. Obviously, there's advertising involved, and you know, I just don't know about the money flow, but we know that the NFL is incredibly rich, and so are the owners. So there's big money involved in this, right? Yeah, but I think it certainly was a respectful thing to do. I, I don't really have um, – I'm agnostic on this. I, mm-hmm. I, I really don't have a strong opinion. Should the game have gone on? I think the reason not to have the game go on is not the sensibility of the fans uh, or the money that would be lost or the poor you know, advertisers whose budgets would be askew, but the fact that you know, looking at the faces of the players on the field, uh, they were in no condition to go on with the game. The way yeah, they, they were in tears their on knees, them. The way they, yeah, the way they cried. Um, this was a very difficult thing because this was the kind of thing that every one of them thought, wow, that could have happened to me. Uh, and and may well, and uh, I, I think it really kind of you know took the juice out of them. I don't think that they should have you know, been forced to play on. Um, as um, as as my former colleague at the Times, Bill Roden, said very eloquently the other night, he said uh, these players you know lease their bodies to the NFL, uh, and the question is you know how far that lease go well joe buck of course the sportscaster alive covering the game kept suggesting that the game might resume but obviously there was a lot going on behind the scenes but in in general though given that this is a unusual to stop a game and not to reschedule it 
I know this is kind of a futile question, but is it is there going to be some kind of reckoning here about the inherent violence in this game? I mean, this is America's game. People like it, but I don't think the average viewer, until perhaps they witnessed what happened to Damar Hamlin, realized the enormous amount of injury and pain that goes on. Even if players are not disabled, as in this case, after every game, they apparently they feel so beaten and sore. You know, I mean, it's a really brutal game. Yeah, but they also, if nobody dies or is seriously injured, they feel uh, exalted and heroic. Of course, uh, you know they're beat up and they're tired, but they, uh, they've come through one of the journeys of Hercules. So I, I, I think. Uh, the, your, your original thought, though, is is very interesting. I mean, is this, you know, the wake up call, you know, to the violence of the game? And I think that every time something happens uh, of shock in American life, we say, "Is this? Is this?" The wake-up call. Will we finally realize what this thing is all about? And we have said that after every single school shooting, which you have to agree is a far more, you know, a violent uh, event in American life. Certainly it wasn't scheduled years in advance like a football game uh, and played out by people who got paid to risk their lives. Uh, And we say, is this finally the straw that breaks the camel's back and brings us gun control or at least a rational look at guns in America? Does this bring us a rational look at the violence of football? in America. I don't think so. Well, but let's compare it to, we just had the the World Cup soccer, and it's a very athletic game, and, you know, there's no no stopping, so they're, they're obviously got to be in good condition to play, whereas in American football, they stop all the time, but still, and then they have these violent clashes. A more accurate comparison would be, I guess, with rugby, but in rugby, they don't have they have shoulder pads, but they don't have they're not padded up, and they don't have helmets and stuff. Is that right. an issue? The fact that they're so padded and protected that they end up being offensive projectiles to be in the helmet yeah, hitting right. you. Actually, is... you're absolutely right. I think that there have been even studies that uh, that that false sense of security that the helmet offers, the shoulder pads, some of the padding around the ribs. Uh, and waste, um, you know, it does give them, in a sense, um, you know, that that uh, immortality, you know, to really throw themselves uh, in in ways that they might not do if they weren't. Uh, although, you know, I, I, I rugby rugby always seemed um, friendlier. You know, I never had the fact that there was malice of forethought in rugby. And certainly the, the point about soccer, they're amazingly conditioned uh, athletes. And, uh, you know, certainly some of the headers uh, have must have given brain damage at some point. And there are you know, terrible collisions. But, uh, again, the, the point is there, there are bad intentions in football. Not bad intentions that these guys are, are evil 
or trying to hurt each other, but bad intentions in that you are really trying to, even for just a moment, disable your opponent, knock them down, get the ball out of his hands, slam him to the ground, stop his progress. Uh, and you do that with your body, and you do that with all your energy. And that's bad intentions. And I think, you know, stuff happens. Sure, there's a lot isn't of... There, isn't there a deliberate effort almost in every play to hurt the quarterback? Well, I... I I think that um you know the the guy who who hurts say Tom Brady you know will get his legs broken in the next game. So I mean you don't want to hurt all the quarterbacks because you know they are the um they are the 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 stars uh that make the money for everybody. So I I I think you want to bring them down. I think uh, you certainly want to stop his progress, but I don't think you necessarily want to hurt the quarterback. No. Right. Well, I, it's sort of semantic. <laughs> stop him. Yeah. <laughs> or put him to the ground at the same time, not hurting him. Right. So just in closing then, uh, Robert Lipsight, is there, I know we, we discussed the possibility, of, you know, and you made the very important and accurate point that, this conversation is rather like uh, the aftermath of mass shootings uh, where we wring our hands and nothing gets done. So at the end of the day, is this, uh, this is America's game? Is this the American pastime? Is this what we like? Is this gladiatorial right pursuit? Yeah, uh, it, it, it is right now. But remember, there have been other sports that were very important to America that there aren't. Horse racing was once very important. Baseball, which is my favorite game, uh, was once far more important um, commercially uh, and psychically to America than football. But this is football's time, and I don't know why. Is it the violence of it? Is the you know technological corporato aspect of it that uh, is its great appeal? Uh, it's people out there risking their lives for us? I have no idea. Uh, but certainly it's exciting to watch. And um, it certainly reflects the incredible violence in our society. I mean, you know, we can't, we can't get away from that. So um, and, and maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it drains off some of that uh, psychotic energy. There'd be more school shootings if there wasn't football. I don't really know, Ian, but I do know that uh, people get off on it. And I'm constantly amazed by you know people who kind of faintly apologize uh, for sports, football in particular, being their guilty pleasure. Um, you know, it's not a guilty pleasure. It's something that obviously we need and want uh, and fulfills some part of living in this society at this time. Well, Robert Litzard, I thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Lipside, who's a longtime sports writer and a jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch. He was previously a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and for the NBC Nightly News, as well as the city columnist for the New York Times and an ombudsman for ESPN. 
and his books include Sports World and American Dreamland and his memoir, An Accidental Sports Writer. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me One more life.